Chuck was a brand new believer, but he had a huge problem. He had been caught in a very public sin. He had been caught actually committing a crime, and he had been arrested, tried, and sentenced. And now, as he was beginning his prison sentence, he wondered what good could possibly come of all that had happened. Now, on the one hand, he could see that there was some good spiritually because God had used his public humiliation, his shame and guilt uh, to break him of his self-reliance and to put him in a place where he was then open to hear the gospel and ultimately led to him putting his faith in Jesus Christ. But now he had trusted in Jesus and he couldn't undo the mistakes that he made. Yes, God had saved him, but could God use him with all the mistakes that he'd made? He also wondered what his faith meant for his future. You know, he was a convicted felon. He was an ex-con. Uh, his failure and crimes were well-known not only to him, but to those who lived in his community. His name and his reputation were forever scarred. Oh, yes, God could forgive him from the eternal penalty of sin, but what effect did his faith have on the effects of those sin? God forgave his sins. He knew that, but but could God heal those wounds? You see, he still had those wounds and those scars, and he knew those scars couldn't be removed. And he felt that those scars would forever define him, forever limit him, his usefulness, and maybe even his value. Well, those failures, um, he thought, would always be a blight on his testimony. How could God ever use him because of what he had done and what was known about what he was done. Now, let me ask you, if, if that person comes to you and shares that story, what would your response be to them? What would you tell them? You know, if he came asking advice, what advice would you give? What scripture would you bring them to? Is that person's self-perception right or wrong? Could God use someone whose life was so marked by public failure, by guilt, who was even known as a criminal? Yes, God can save anyone, but can he use anyone, even those that are so deeply scarred or broken? Now, even as I ask this question, I realize that there are many here who are likewise asking that question of your own life. You know, might look at that, and, and maybe you have been arrested, but it may not be that. It may not be this public expo you know, uh, uh, exposure of your sin. Maybe you're not sentenced to jail, but you know your past. And while you're thankful for God's forgiveness, you still question whether God could really overcome the scars of your past and really use you. You see, over the years, I've talked to countless people who have a relationship with Christ and then they know that they've been forgiven, but, but they still feel scarred and marked by those scars. Maybe it's not even something that you did. Maybe it was something that was done to you. You were abused in the past and you question, you know, how could God use me? You're, you're, you feel that, that that forever, you know, mars you in a sense. Or maybe it was something that, again, someone else did to you. Maybe it was something that you did before you were a Christian and, and you did these things that you now regret. You wish you could go back. But again, how could God use someone like that? And, and even if you have those doubts, you say, okay, is that from God? Is God telling you you're a second-class citizen? Is that God telling you that, that his redemption really can't overcome that? Or, or does it come from another source? What does God say? Well, that's a lot of what we're looking at this morning in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, we're really diving into verses 9 through 14, the passage we read just a moment ago. But I feel like I need to go back to verse 3 and look at everything from 3 to 14 because as we've seen in the last couple of weeks for those who have been with us, 
in, in Ephesians, in the original Greek, verses 3 through 14 is one sentence. It's the longest sentence in the original Greek. It's in, in anywhere in original Greek. It's, you know, it's this incredible one simple idea where Paul just starts on just, you know, proclaiming and celebrating the blessings we have and our identity in Christ, and he just gets carried away with it. The, the sentence is really summed up in its first, you know, first bit, kind of introducing the whole theme. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That we have these incredible blessings. And, um, and, and then he goes on and explains what those are. Now, as I've looked at this whole section, I realized that it's a celebration of these blessings, but the whole thing has certain themes that kind of run through the whole sentence. I, I think three themes that I've seen. And, um, and, and I want to kind of take a moment and look at these themes that define everything that he's saying. Now, even before I get to the themes, let me just point out that even as it talks about the blessings that we have in Christ, some people will think, oh, well, that's in heaven. One day we get the eternal blessings. And, and that's part of the blessing. We're going to see in a moment that's part of what he's telling us. But he's also telling us that these blessings aren't primarily future, that there's incredible current blessings he wants us to see. Again, if you look at verse 3, what does it say? It says, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, not who will bless us. It's not that these blessings are yet to come. They're blessings that he has given us. They're present realities that he wants us to understand, that we, he wants us to live into. Because if we don't understand them, if we don't believe them, they're blessings that will be ours that we'll never fully appropriate to ourselves. Okay, so what are the reoccurring themes? The first one is, is something that is, we've mentioned in the last couple of weeks, it's just definitive within this, and that is that all our blessings flow from relationship with God. So the greatest blessings we, we may often think of, you know, the blessings like gave me this and my health and this job, or the greatest blessings that God gives us aren't material possessions. It's a relationship, and everything else comes from that. God has pursued a relationship with us. He loves us. He's committed to us as a parent loves a child. And all the other blessings flow from and are an expression of that relationship. I mean, this is something that is, you know, Paul makes really clear, so we don't miss it. It's actually throughout this sentence, 12 times he says, in Christ or in him, that it's restated again, starting off, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. What are these blessings? The result of the relationship, because we're in the relationship these are the blessings we have. Let me point out a couple more. Verse 4, he chose us in him. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself. Verse 6 or 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Verse 10, his plan is to unite us all things in him. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, you believed in him and were sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's repeated again and again. All the promises, all the blessings come from this relationship. Now, no, I talk to some people that talk about spiritual things and, and talk about a relationship, and for some it doesn't make sense because some people coming from a more religious background, you know, they're going to say, well, what is a relationship? And in fact, I'll, I'll have people ask me periodically, you know, why are you religious? And, and, and my standard answer is, well, no, I'm not. And people are like, what do you mean? You're past? Well, actually, I'm not religion, religious in the sense that religion is all about rules. It's all about doing the right things to somehow feel like we've earned God's favor. And my faith isn't about religion at all. It's about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Totally different concept. 
It's a relationship that Paul describes in verse 5 as being that of a parent-child by adoption. Look again what it says. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He adopts us into this relationship of us. It, it changes our identity. So we're now children of the king. We're in Christ. And with this identity comes all the relationships. Now, we look at that and you say, well, how do we get that? Is it because of what we do? No, it's in love he predestined us. It's an act of his grace, not of us earning or deserving. Again, this is so different than man-made concepts of religion. Because when, when you look at religion, basically all religions other than true Christianity kind of have a similar idea. They're based on the same basic concept. Every religion says that there is a God, there is some, some spiritual reality, however you understand God, and there is a, a gap between us and God. And, and they may talk about God's love, but it's really not about love because the religion is not about God's love and grace towards us, it's about us doing you see, there's this gap, and religion is, okay, here are the rules you have to keep, the things you have to do or don't do, and you have to, you know, if you do the right prayers or the right sacrifices, if you take the trip to Mecca, if you tithe 10%, whatever it is, then you will impress God enough. You may, you know, impress him to, he's going to let you into heaven, or, or if you want something, you'll, you'll impress him to, so he'll bend his will to yours and do what you want. See, now, Christianity isn't that way at all. In fact, the God of the Bible, which is the true God, is totally different than any other human perception of God. He's, he's, he's holy. He's different. And all these religions are based on our perception of our relationships. They're man's concepts of what God should be. God isn't like that. God is different. And he revealed himself into the Bible because if he didn't reveal himself, we could never understand him. And the whole idea of his love and his grace and how we have relationship with him is different. See, God doesn't love us because we become lovable or we impress him. No, God loves us when we're not lovable and he makes us lovable. He changes us. And it's God who initiates into our lives. It's, it's, we don't have to fix ourselves. And we, you know, we don't have to become spiritual. And what we have to do is admit our needs and accept the gift that he gives. It's all about grace. And even in that, you say, okay, well, don't you try to obey him? Don't you try to do? Yeah, I do. But why do I love God? Why do I obey him? Why do I serve him? Why do I worship? Not to earn his love, not to earn his favor, but in response to the love that he's already given. Because he's adopted me, because he loves me, therefore I love him back in response. And that's incredible. And, and so then if you understand that, you understand the incredible nature of this relationship, all the other blessings flow from it. But it even goes beyond that. See, it's kind of touching on this idea that it's God's initiation. When we look at this relationship, it's, it's initiated ultimately by God's sovereign choice. Now, people often, even in religion, they'll talk about, well, it's predestination and God's choice or, or free will and our choice. And, and we struggle with these ideas. And I don't want to get into the whole theological idea. I will say that at times the Bible seems to talk about both ideas. From our perspective, from my perspective, I hear God's call and I have the free choice to accept or reject. And the Bible at times refers to that. So for example, a clear passage is in Joshua. Joshua chapter 4, Joshua is the leader of the people of Israel called his called the people, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is our choice. 
So there is a sense that from our perspective, we make that choice. But from God's perspective, it's God that initiates. It's God the one that ultimately, even the Bible talks about, he predestines and, and he calls. It's not just that he foreknew what we would do, but he actually initiated before we would do anything. See, think of it this way. He talks about the relationship in terms of a father-parent, you know, a father-child relationship. We've been adopted into that relationship. It's, it's not a relationship we earn. Again, think of the picture of adoption. You know, when you have a, a child, you know, some of you have adopted a child, and when you adopted that child, what did that child do to earn the adoption? You came to see him, and they cried, and they pooped, and it was like, okay, that's not impressing you. You know, that's not, I mean, that's not like, oh, man, they've earned it. No, they didn't do anything. But you came and you chose that child. You adopted by your choice, and the child received the benefit. And that's what God is saying here, that it's God's initiation. And just in case that we might explain our way around it or miss this, it's repeated numerous times in this one sentence. Look at, look at verse 4. What does it say? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before we did anything or would do anything. Verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Again, not based on anything that we had done, but based purely on his love as an act of grace. He continues, verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It's God's initiation. Now, this is, should be affirming. You know why? Because if I had to earn my way in, I'm always going to risk that maybe I can lose my way and get out. If it's my goodness, if it's my being lovable, what if I go through a season that I'm not lovable? Could God then reject me? But if it's God's God's election, God's choice, if it was his love that he chose me, not based on anything I've done, well, then I'm secure because it's all by his grace. But it's not only that. It even gets more powerful. It even gets better. Because when you look at this, it's telling us not only does his predestination, his, his initiation, um, it doesn't start and end in, in our adoption. That's where it starts, but it's not where it ends. Because his sovereignty, his control over our life, his, his initiation is something that extends even beyond that throughout not only the beginning of our relationship, but all the way through. Again, look at verse 11. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's not the beginning of our relationship. That's all the way through. Again, let's go back to verse 4. What does it say? Uh, in verse 4, he's talking, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Not just that we would be his child, but that we would be changed because of that, that we would become holy and blameless before him. And so this kind of introduces this third theme that's running throughout the whole idea, and that is that, that God not only has a, a purpose for us to adopt us, but he has a plan for our whole life. And he's working out that plan. And Paul says, okay, yeah, this is who you are in Christ. You've been chosen to be adopted as a child. But because of that, you've been chosen to be different. You've been chosen with a new identity and a new purpose in life. You're, you're part of this plan that God has for you. In predestining us, he's changed our, our identity, our purpose, our destiny. If you have your Bibles, look at Ephesians 1.9. Look what it says. God makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Now, here's what's God's plan for your life. It starts with the fact that when you get your life right with God, you get your relationship with, right with God, everything in your life starts to get right as a result. 
Think of it this way. In the beginning, God created a perfect world, the Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect. Why? We had a perfect relationship with God. And then what messed it up? Man chose sin, and when our, we sinned, we broke our relationship with God, and as a side effect of that, everything else in creation began to be broken as well. All other relationships, you know, our culture, even nature itself is broken as a side effect of broken relationship with God. Now, Jesus then came to redeem us from our sins, offer forgiveness through death on the cross. Why? So we can have the relationship with God we were created for. And this is the amazing part. When we fix our relationship with God, one of the side effects is it starts to fix all the other areas that were broken, you know, by the fall. It, it doesn't totally change them. It doesn't totally, that will be totally set, on the, set free on the other side of eternity. But it begins to reverse impacts of the curse. In our own lives at first, it, you know, we take our marriage and we don't know how to fix it. It's broken. And the more I get right with God, the more that my marriage is right, the more my parenting is right, the more every aspect of my life starts to get fixed. Not only that, but it changes not only who I am, but by destiny. Because God, God says, okay, now I want you to go live into the world as salt and light, where you're, you're healing agent into this world who desperately needs this message. Look what it says in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. This is God's plan prepared even beforehand that has always been part of God's plan. Now learn to understand it. Learn to live into it. Learn to, to live into this new identity. As we see these themes you know, continuing, I think that then we come to verse 11 and Paul kind of sums it all up. He kind of wraps it together, ties it up, and he, and he does so using the concept of inheritance. He says, all these blessings, if you want to know these blessings, we can sum them up and we have this inheritance. Because you are God's child, he's given you an identity and he's given you the inheritance of these blessings. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. When we understand that inheritance, man, it makes a huge difference. Here's the idea. Again, we get our right life right with God. As we get our life right with God, what is God's goal? His goal is that he will then bring everything in line with uniting all things together in Christ's will. will bring everything back. And, and so what happens is how does it do that? Well, he does that by working in our life, as it says there in 11, that we're predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, this is an amazing idea. It's not just that one day on the other side of eternity that Jesus fixes everything. He does that. But on this side of eternity, in our current experience, God is in the process of beginning to give us this inheritance in the here and now. He's beginning to set things right. Yes, it won't be completely set right until, until, you know, until heaven. Uh, you know, we have that inheritance. We don't fully get it until then but we got a taste of it now. He's currently working out everything in conformity of his, his will. That's not a future statement, that's a current statement. And so when you understand this, what it's teaching here is this incredible truth. This is such a, you know, it's one of those that is just too good to believe. God is redeeming our past for a good purpose. Again, look at what he says there in verse 11. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's working everything according to the counsel of his will, including our past. 
See, it's not just that everything will be set right in eternity, but for those who are his children, he's doing that in here and now. And it's not just when we make a decision or even make a mistake or whatever happens in the here and now that God is going to work it out for good. God's work is so incredible. His sovereignty, his control is so overwhelming that what it means is that he takes everything in our life, not only what's happening now, but even things that have happened in the past, even sins that we've done in the past, even when we wandered away from Christ, even when we were rejecting him, even things that were done to us, he takes all of those things because he works all things according to the purpose of his will. Many of you know that. I don't know how many times I've talked to people and you say, oh yeah, there was this season, man, I was running from God, I was angry. I was... And then you say, but in that, God was always chasing me. And you see the things that you were doing that running from God and somehow they were still leading you back to him. We know that in our own story, but do you know how true that that is? That he works all things. So now this is kind of hard for us to grasp in part because we know that God doesn't cause sin. He doesn't sin. He doesn't cause anyone else to. And the Bible is clear on that. So when, while we know it's true, we say, well, if God can't be the source of sin, well, if I've sinned, God can't be the source of that. And God must be absent. If somebody sinned against me, does, is God there? Does he, even, does he care? And here's what we need to realize. What Paul is saying here is that when he's saying that God works everything according to the counsel of his will. People will do sinful things to you. People will... Sinful things, evil things have been done to many of you. Uh, but that's not the final word. Because God is bigger than sin. There have been times that we have wandered away and we have done things that we firmly regret, but that is not the final word because God is bigger than even our sin. And God will even use those things for his plan and purposes and he will turn it for good. Which is an incredible truth because if we're in the middle of despair, if we're in the middle of disaster, it's not over. God has a plan. God has a good purpose. If you're looking at things and you're buried by the past, don't let that define you because God has, his goal is to bend all those things back to the purpose of his will so he brings good. If you've been victimized in the past, I don't want to downplay the significance and the pain and the horror of that, but God is bigger than your abuse. And he can bend even that to the purpose of his will. If your past includes actions that you now deeply regret, you wish you could change, they've just, they've left you scarred. I want you to realize that God is greater than your sin. His grace is greater than your sin. And he can bend even those things back to the purpose of his will. Friends, this is actually an idea that is taught throughout the Bible. A great illustration of it is Genesis chapter 50, the life of Joseph. And Joseph... um, you know, was wrong deeply. He had, you know, brothers who were very jealous of him and they, you know, they tried to, wanted to kill him. They sold him into slavery. The ultimate betrayal. They had done things that were totally terrible, motivated by hatred. And yet, we see in the life of of Joseph that God bends that all towards good. And at the end of his, at at the end of the book, Joseph is speaking to his brothers and and look at what he says. uh, Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Yeah, its intent was evil, but God was in charge of it all and God allowed it for good because he's turned it for good. It's an idea, again, another great place. Romans chapter eight, look what it says in Romans eight. Many many of you may know Romans 8, 28, which is, it says, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God's got a plan, same idea, that God, that God works all things for good. Not that all things are good. It doesn't say that. 
There are things that are terrible. There are things that happen in life that are, you know, that are, that are you know, bad and evil and sinful. But God works all of those things, even those things for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, who have that relationship. That's a great promise. Now, how does that work? Look what he says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, here's what he's saying. He foreknew us. He, he, in a sense, called us to be his children, but also predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So he, he started it from the time of our adoption. His goal is at the end that we're conformed to the image of his son. And he's not only predestined the ends, he's predestined the means. So he's working all these things to accomplish this goal that he has in his life. Even the bad, even the, you know, even the terrible. I mean, it's incredible what he's saying. Now, we may look at that and we say, but there's times in the midst of it, because it's bad, I don't see it. I don't feel it. I, I feel like God isn't there. I don't see how this could be God's good purpose. And Paul, again, anticipates that, you know, that struggle. And so he continues next verse. What shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who, uh, he who did not spare his, own, um, spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What should we say to these things? What should we say to the evil? What should we say to the brokenness? We know that God is for us. We know that he has adopted us. We know that he has redeemed us. He has proved that. And because we know that, we can have confidence. So therefore, if we believe that, then what is our hope? Look what it says in verse 37. No, in all these things, in all the things of brokenness, in all the brokenness of life, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We aren't just survivors. We aren't even just conquerors. We're more than conquerors. We come out of it stronger because God has a good purpose. That's the promise. It's an amazing truth that God's sovereignty extends even to our failures, the wrongs that have done against us. And you say, how in the world does that work? You know what? I can't tell you how it works. I Sometimes when people say, well, here's what it is, and we start quoting Scripture, and we start, watch out for that, because I don't know the mind of God. God's ways are way beyond mine. I don't know the details. It's beyond my knowing. I don't know the how, but I know the why. It's rooted in God who is. It's rooted in the fact that God is bigger than Satan. God is bigger than sin. God is bigger than us. God is bigger than the person who abused you. God is bigger than our folly. He's bigger than our, re than our, than our rebellion against him. And it doesn't matter what happens. If we bring it before him and if we wait long enough, we will see how the living God who is bigger than all these things is able to bend it back to the purpose of his will and bring good out of it. It's not all useless and vain. It's an amazing idea that everything is in the sovereign hand of a good and loving God. My friends, if, if we really believe this, the implications are incredible. It means that we need to be willing to look back at our past, look at the deepest scars that we have, the things that we want to avoid, the things that we want to hide from everyone else, the things that cause us the deepest pain. We need to be willing to look at the things that cause the deepest shame and, and realize to say, God, what is your purpose? Because even when I was doing this or this was done to me, you were still sovereign. And Father, you want to turn this to something good. And again, we know this in experience. How often have you heard someone who gets up and they give a testimony and they share something terrible about their life and it's horrific and you're like, and they share and you say, man, what a great story. 
And if you sit there and you just listen to the story, you say, what a terrible story. That's terrible. What makes it a great story? It's because of the grace of God that God takes our scars, he takes our shame, and he turns it into a story of glory. And we see it with other people and we celebrate it. Man, but it's so hard to believe and to see it in ourselves. Friends, it's not only that, but when we understand this, we realize that there is this inheritance. That, and the principle is that, is that, yes, there's a future, but we have an initial deposit in that inheritance. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it in the praise of his glory. Now, the word guarantee is the, is the same word that would have the idea of initial deposit, first installment. And the idea that, you know, you owe something and you make a first installment on it. You know, the down payment on the house is the idea. And here's what you need to realize. What he's saying is, okay, we have this belief, and God just doesn't give us the Holy Spirit to sign the contract, one day I'm going to bless you. No, he gives us a down payment. He gives us the first installment. You know what that means? It means that, yes, our ultimate fulfillment is in heaven. It ultimately is there. But we get some of it now. We get a foretaste. It's not just a one day. It's that we get the Holy Spirit working in us now. We get one day God's going to set everything right, but we get some of that power now. It's here with us. God is working in our lives and the beginning of the process of working all things according to the purpose of his will. Sometimes we may not understand it. Many times we're not going to see it. That's why it talks about in verse 9, the mystery of his will. A lot of times it's going to be a mystery to us because I don't see the how, but I know the why. And the question is, can I believe these things to be true? And, and even as I'm there, one of the things that's, we're going to struggle because we don't not only see it, we don't feel it. And, and the fact is, although God is working all things to good, that doesn't mean they're good. It means that we still live in a world that is broken and we still live in a world that, that there is pain and where there's frustration and all evil. And Now remember, this is an initial deposit, but it's a deposit and that deposit is, is both a taste of what we have and a guarantee of what's yet to come. Now, see, it's natural to think of this, look at this and say, you know, my fact, you know, the, you know we live in a world that's full of sin. Um, we look around us and we see brokenness and we see sin and we see evil and we see death. And, and, and while God may do something wonderful through it, in the midst of the brokenness, it's hard to see it. I mean, this week, up in, we live in a world with too much snow. I mean, I just, I'm, anybody else tired of that? I mean, it, I mean, even, I think even my son who loves sled riding has said, we've got too much snow. You know, it's just like, I don't think there's going to be snow in heaven. I don't, I just, my own opinion. It's just like, uh, we live in a broken world, though. And there's all kinds of brokenness in that. You know, just yesterday, I spent time with someone who's a, you know, believer, and, and he's telling me about, his 16-year-old daughter had been diagnosed with inoperable brain cancer. And just what that was like. He told me about the pain of walking through with her for four years and, and ultimately a couple years ago seeing her pass away and, and the impact that that has had on his other kids, on his marriage, on his faith. And, and he expressed just the pain. And even sometimes the frustration of well-meaning believers trying to encourage him by quoting Bible verses and and here's a simple answer, and, and it's tempting to say, well, Ephesians 1.11, God works all things for good. My friends, it's, it's a great promise, but it's more, far more than being simplistic. See, part of what this is teaching is this. While our inheritance isn't all future, while God has given us a deposit and begun the process of healing, 
The fact is, is that while that's true, we only get a little taste in the here and now. Why? Because the key is that we have a relationship with God. That's what broke everything, and once we have it, it starts to heal everything, but God leaves us in this broken world. So even though I have this relationship with God, I live in a broken world where brokenness is all around me. And so what he's doing is not bringing me out of brokenness, but he's bringing healing into the brokenness. And so in the midst of this, we're still living in, in brokenness where there is cancer and where is death and where there is and, and all these things. And, and those things are evil. I mean, abuse is evil and cancer is evil and death is an enemy and betrayal and rejection are painful. And we're still in this world and on this side of eternity, we live with those things for a short time, for now. But we also know that because we're in Christ, we have been adopted in him and we are promised the ultimate inheritance. Oh, what we have now is, is wonderful, but it's a taste. It's a small down payment that gives us a little taste of what we'll, be, we'll have in the future. And, and there's a sense that when we live in this broken world and we experience the brokenness, part of us cries out, this is wrong. It's with that father and it's, this is wrong. It is wrong. You know why? Because this is the world we were created for. We weren't created for a world with cancer and death and betrayal and, and, and abuse. We weren't. We were created for Eden. And our soul knows that. And I want to go back there. There's something in our soul that cries out for this echo of this world that we know we belong in. And yet we don't live in. And here's what we have to realize. Because you have this relationship with God, one day you get to get eaten. eaten. One day you're going to get the perfect world you're created for. That's what heaven is. And the reason this can transform us is this. When we deal with the brokenness of life, it's still painful, it's still hard, it's still incredibly difficult. But you know what? One day I get more, and I know I get more. And as much as I want heaven on earth, I'm never going to get heaven on earth, but I don't need heaven on earth because I get heaven one day. And the fact that I get heaven one day doesn't make it necessarily easier, but it makes it more bearable in a sense because I can realize I don't need all my hopes satisfied here because I know they will be one day. See, here's a wonderful truth. Some of you heard me say this before. If you are a Christian, this is as close to hell as you're going to ever get. Our experience of the brokenness of sin and this reality, this is as close to hell as you're going to ever get. And I can survive this a little bit because I know what's coming. Now, if you're not a Christian, you don't have a relationship with God. God invites you to that relationship, but if you deny that and to your death, this is as close to heaven as you're ever going to get. The experience of God's, you know, um, pervasive grace that comes through creation. But one day if you die, that you totally lose that. You lose any connection with God. That's why God invites you to relationship with him. He says, I, I want to redeem you. I, I, Jesus died on the cross so your sins could be forgiven. But those who have that, we know that this is as close to hell as I'm going to ever get. And one day there will be no pain and no sin and no curse and no more lies and you know what? Because I know that one day I'm going to get heaven, I don't need all my hopes fulfilled here. I can, I can survive the disappointment and the pain because I know one day I'm going to get what my soul, soul longs for. Now, if I really understand this, it should change me. If I understand and live with that view towards eternity, this inheritance, this reality of my identity in Christ, that I should live into this identity, I should live into this inheritance, I should be a radically different person. Because what I believe about myself will shape not only what I, what I think, but then how I act and 
I will live up or down to what I believe myself to be. And the reality is, even as a follower of Christ, that is not only changing who we are, but it's understanding, letting God come back and change who we were and redeem all the things that have happened to us. And it will change us. Chuck struggled with that. He knew his sin and exposure and his humiliation were so public. Not only all his friends, literally everyone in the country knew his shame. He felt his failures would always be a blight on his testimony. How could God use him? Because his failure was as public as it could ever be. Chuck Colson was one of the chief advisors to President Nixon. His crime was Watergate. He was in the national news. He was, one of, you know, he was on the front of all national news. You couldn't get any worse. And yet, that's what God used to break him of himself and to lead him ultimately to faith in Christ. Now he was thankful for God's forgiveness, but he wished that God could undo his mistakes. How could God use someone who had been so you know, blatantly failed so publicly? God could forgive his sins, but could he undo the, the effects of his mistakes? While in prison, he used the time to grow in his relationship with God. He even then started a Bible study for other inmates, and he, and he started to see a need there. And, and God began to use him and work in him, and he felt led that when he got out to, to write a book about his story, to not hide his past, but to run towards it and to talk about how God used that to change his life. He wrote a book called Born Again, a simple book. No, at first, a lot of people really, you know, pan, you know uh, criticized it, great skepticism. You know, this is a guy that's just trying to redeem his image. And, but yet, it took fire, and it sold well over 2 million copies, was translated in, in countless different languages, has touched, you know, thousands and thousands of life, or of other lives of people that have read it. And not only that, but then he said, okay, but how could God use me, you know, my reputation? And suddenly, he realized in this time in prison, there were a group of people that, Everyone in the culture was ignoring. You had prisoners that no one was caring for. And yet the Bible calls us to be able to reach out to prisoners. And he said, oh, you know what? I have now experience in prison. I now understand that need. And so he felt then God called him to step down from this position of great power and instead to start a ministry to, to inmates, to prisoners. He started a ministry called Prison Fellowship. And it's something that has grown in the decades since, to, you know, basically in almost every prison in the country. Prisons throughout the world touch thousands and thousands of lives. Why? Because what he realized is that the things that he thought disqualified him, he let God work in him and redeem and use. Yes, we bear scars. Yes, you have scars in your life. Yes, you look at those and you say, those scars are things, they're ugly. And they are to you. But if you understand this, if you let God take your scars and work his grace in those, he will transform those scars and make them unique signs of beauty. Only God can do that. He will take our shame. He will take your shame and he will say, let me transform it. And he will say, this is the story of my grace and glory. So when people hear your story, you'll say, not what a terrible story, what a great story. God will take the areas that we think disqualify us and he says, okay, God, show me how you want to use that. And he will take that very thing and he will say, okay, I'm going to turn that for my good, for my glory, for my plan. My friends, only God can do that. I hope and pray that you believe these things. I hope that you pray that you're saying, God, I want to run towards that. I want, you to, I want, I want to be able to run towards the things that are, that are hardest in my life and let you speak into them. 
let you work your, your word because you want to work all things according to the counsel of your will. 